This episode of She Explorers is brought to you by Deuter, who have been making technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. They're also a leader of sustainability in the outdoor industry because they build their packs to summit mountains, not landfills. Stay tuned for later in the episode. I'll share more about the Deuter promise to repair any Deuter pack free of charge. Learn more by heading to Deuter.com. This episode is also brought to you by Merrill. Merrill exists to give you all you need to discover the simple yet profound power of the trail. They believe the trail is for everybody and everybody. Merrill's goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products that over-deliver on performance, versatility, and durability. Because when you've got air in your lungs and good shoes on your feet, you've got everything you need. I've been baby-stepping my way back into running, and my favorite way to do so is by hitting trails. My go-to trail runners have been the Maryland Torres, which are designed specifically for women and feature a special stability technology and Vibram outsole for extra confidence on very terrain, which I feel like I especially need because even though my mom said I would, I never grew out of my klutziness. Learn more at Merrill.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-L-L.com. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. I came out here thinking I was going to be here a summer. <laughs> and it's, uh, gosh, five or six years later now. Volcanoes, bears, and salmon, you really can't go wrong with that combination. <laughs> this is Sarah Woolman, a park ranger for U.S. Fish and Wildlife who lives in King Salmon, Alaska a tiny town that boasts around 300 full-time residents in the winter, but swells up in the summer to 12,000, thanks to fishermen and tourists to nearby Katmai National Park. You know, everyone has these grand visions of Alaska and what it's going to look like, and they picture, like, Denali, (laughs) essentially. Where I'm at is very flat tundra uh, with a lot of braided rivers, and I'm about 15 minutes from Bristol Bay, which is part of the Bering Sea. So it's just like looking out for miles and miles and miles of tundra with mountains and volcanoes in the far background. So it's it's a very glacially formed area where the Alaska Peninsula is. And you can see where the, the glaciers kind of just like flattened everything out until you get to the mountains, which you can see in the background. And it's very volcanic. We are on the Ring of Fire. So you can see puffs of steam coming up from the volcanoes in the distance on like clear mornings. It's pretty neat. And where I live is right on the Naknek River, which is where everybody goes salmon fishing. We get all five species of salmon, which is pretty awesome. And there's just constant float planes taking off <laughs> that are, you'll probably hear during this interview because <laughs> they love to buzz my house. <laughs> and then uh, a lot of boats going back and forth, too. And every once in a while, a bear pops out in my backyard. <laughs> The first thing you'll notice about Sarah is that she's quick to laugh in a super contagious way. It's no surprise that her work in both national parks and fish and wildlife has included working with people to interpret science and educate about the natural world. She reached out to me for a specific reason, something she's confronted with daily in her work and life in Alaska, but we'll learn about that more later in the conversation. First, I wanted to know how she, a woman born and raised in New York City, found herself a home in Alaska. It started with a family vacation in 2009 to the southeast part of the state. It was her first visit out west. 
seeing the abundance of wildlife and the uh, the mountains was pretty incredible. I I was completely blown away. It was one of those things where I was seeing whales breaching and moose and just giant mountains falling into the sea, and I was just completely hooked. <laughs> And I just said to myself, this is a place I need to get back to. (laughs) Sarah was just about to graduate from college. I have a degree in uh, political science with a focus on environmental policy and an art degree. (laughs) Yes, I know they're very different. (laughs) They might seem different, but a background in art and environmental policy has given her a leg up in applying for jobs in the National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife. Sarah attributes her varied interest to growing up just outside of Manhattan and Queens. Her parents took her to lots of museums and up to the Adirondack Mountains. That visit in Alaska in 2009 left her itching to return. I got the bug pretty heavily. Um, You speak to most people that come out here and have been here for a while, and all of them are like, oh, yeah, I was just going to come up for a season, or I just came up on vacation, and everyone's like 10 years deep. So it makes sense that there are a good number of transplants in Alaska. It's kind of funny. I always attribute some of like the local bars and watering holes here to that one scene in uh, Star Wars and New Hope on Mos Eisley where they're all in that that cantina <laughs> where everyone comes here from different parts of the galaxy with really crazy stories. <laughs> Of course, Alaskans aren't all coming from across the galaxy. Census data for King Salmon says the population is around 60% white, 30% Native American. So there have been people there for thousands of years. Sarah moved to Alaska in 2013 to lead a trail crew. Did, did you know it would be a longer term move? No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I am totally the statistic. I came here in 2013 um, to run a youth trail crew um, all throughout the state, which was a lot of fun. You know, I say youth, they were ages like 17 to 23. So I wasn't that much older than them. <laughs> I think I was like 26. <laughs> yeah, and it was awesome. I went all around the state, uh, did a lot of development and stuff with them and they trained them on a lot of different skills and I got hooked. I was like, I can't leave. So I stayed the winner. (laughs) I needed a refresher. So Sarah described trail work to me. It's about maintaining the trails specifically so that people aren't making these user trails off the side of them. I was working a lot in um, different national parks. I was working in Denali and Kenai Fjords, Wrangell St. Elias, and then doing a lot of just like public land management and training them on the use of hand tools in wilderness areas and training power tools like chainsaw and brushers and all that. And then installing structures like stone staircases. So all that stuff you see when you're out hiking, there's a lot of manpower behind that and women power for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I was, I was on a hike yesterday and just the places that you see, like you said, stone stairways where they're like big cuts of rock or I think about in New Hampshire we have all these like bog bridges Mm -hmm. and they have to get there you know sometimes it's from helicopter for like bog bridges and everything but there is so much labor that goes into that yeah it's crazy had you had experience with that before you you went out to Alaska I had I started my first trail crew I graduated college and got on a plane the next day to do a trail crew in Washington state in the uh, Columbia Cascades, like the Mount Adams wilderness area. 
on the Pacific Crest Trail, and it completely changed my life. <laughs> it's funny. We all still talk today. That was 2010, 2011. Jeez, time goes by. <laughs> but it was amazing. I had obviously, I'd hiked and done some stuff before, but I hadn't just lived in the wilderness for like a month on end, being packed in with horses <laughs> and mules and whatnot. And, you know, we were doing like cross-cut saw stuff, a whole bunch of neat things. And um, after that, I had moved to California working for the California Conservation Corps as kind of their project coordinator person and worked with trails, fire crew, salmon habitat restoration. Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) Something about manual labor in the outdoors. Pretty cool. (laughs) And then I came to Alaska to run that crew after that. When you were growing up, did you think that you'd do something physical for your job? No idea. I I had no clue. (laughs) No, no, it kind of just fell my way. And um, it it was it was awesome. I still talk about it. (laughs) After the trail season, Sarah caught the bug. She wanted to stay in Alaska and got a job as a ranger at Katmai National Park. I asked her how that came to be. You apply <laughs> on USA Jobs, which is always kind of a mire to get through, but that is the way to get a federal job. Uh, yeah, I was working, I was actually working as a carpenter at this lodge in Girdwood, Alaska, and had applied and got a call. And they were just like, Do you want to come to Katmai and be a park ranger? And I said, Yes, <laughs> definitely. I mean, volcanoes, bears, and salmon, you really can't go wrong with that combination. (laughs) Were you surprised when you got a call about the job? I was. I was. (laughs) Definitely. It was like, you want me? But I'm just this trail bum. (laughs) (laughs) I just like live out of my tent. You really? (laughs) And that is one of the things you do. You just kind of like apply to everything and hope that someone calls you. (laughs) I have learned a lot (laughs) since that time, too, about how to navigate all of that. Sarah thinks her graphic design and art background helped round out her resume, as it's ended up factoring into much of the interpretive work she's done for the National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife. It's a reminder that you might be surprised by how your special skills and interests can help you in a job search, whether it's in the public or private sector. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that here, but Sarah included a very generous offer. If people are interested in learning how to like get into the fields that I get into, I'd be like more than happy to help guide them with that for sure. As always, I'll include links to Sarah's social media and portfolio in the show notes and on she-explores.com. But back to Sarah and her job at Katmai National Park. I was really excited and just came out here with my pack, a tote of food, and then my mandolin. And now I have a whole house full of stuff. <laughs> That's <laughs> when I started. Yeah, I just was like, I'm doing this. I'm going to do something cool and different. And what did the work look like that first year? So it was very different than than trail work. I wanted to try something a little bit different. I had kind of hurt my back a little bit from nothing exciting. <laughs> Pulling a pull start and a chainsaw weird. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> um, so I, I was like, I need to take a break from the whole manual labor gig and do something else. And uh, this this position in particular was a lot of local outreach and uh, education, so environmental education stuff. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it was mostly based at King Salmon in the visitor center here. And um, I had the opportunity to get out to all different areas of the park, to Brooks Camp, 
um, down to refuges and particularly just work with the local community here to try and get them more involved in, in public lands and, and you know, how they can participate in it more too. So it was, it was awesome. A lot of kids programs, which are my favorite. <laughs> I worked there in the summer and I did work a bit into the winter because I was designing the uh, Junior Ranger book for Katmai. And then Fish and Wildlife hired me on as their winter um, education ranger. And I worked flying down to all different remote villages and doing environmental education and all of them. I mean, we're talking villages of like 40 people, which is pretty cool to go check out. And I've made some pretty incredible friends from traveling to all these places. And so I had been kind of bouncing back and forth doing that for a couple of years. So Katmai out at Brooks Camp was the following year, which is the place with all the bears, and then back to Fish and Wildlife in the winter. And then now I work for Fish and Wildlife year round as their education specialist. And then I also manage the Katmai Conservancy, which is a nonprofit friends group affiliated with Katmai National Park. So yeah, I have a lot of spare time. <laughs> <laughs> What goes into managing the conservancy? Because I think a lot of people don't know a lot about these, like, conservancies that kind of supplement the work that the park is doing. Yeah, so they help a lot because as a federal agency, you cannot take donations because we're a tax-funded agency. But friends groups for refuges, for parks, help um, supplement things in these parks that they need or take the donations for the park, stuff like that. So it's a lot. Uh, the Conservancy is a relatively new friends group. It started in 2016 in conjunction with Explore.org, which is well worth checking out if you have the chance. They have really cool live animal cams all over the world. So it's it's a lot of project management. So helping figure out like where funds are going for what research project or what infrastructure or um, educational supplies, and then a lot of local outreach too. So we try to do uh, a big community event, um, typically a cultural related one here every year. And then of course, help promote Fat Bear Week, which is everyone's favorite week. It <laughs> might compete with Shark Week. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, what's Fat Bear Week? Oh boy. <laughs> so the first week of October... Uh, there is a competition that the bears don't even realize is happening, <laughs> but the um, audience of the bear cam and everybody that views Katmai National Park social media votes on the fattest bear. <laughs> and it's like a bracket race thing. So they compete with each other. And then the fattest bear is crowned at the end because they get really fat. <laughs> Not an understatement. <laughs> You don't even recognize the same bears from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. So <laughs> it's cool to learn the behavior behind it because they're entering a stage called hyperphagia where their metabolism is just going like crazy and they just need to eat, eat, eat until they hibernate. So that's what they're doing. So th their metabolism kicks up to make them hungry, but they're not necessarily burning through all that food. They're storing it. Exactly. Yep. Sarah is full of Alaskan anecdotes. After the break, we'll talk more about her life there, touching on the community she's found in a small town and what it's like to have a child in the bush. Plus, we'll talk about why Sarah reached out to us in the first place and the ripple effects that has on the rest of the world. All that after this. 
Deuter has been making technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. And because they build their packs to summit mountains, not landfills, they promise to repair any Deuter pack free of charge, no matter how old it is or the reason for damage or defect. If you're listening to this, odds are good that you're a hiker or a backpacker, or you're interested in becoming one of the two. So you get how special your pack is to you. It becomes like an old friend. Its straps hug your shoulders and the weight falls on your hips just so. I've carried my daughter 60 liter on overnights in the White Mountains, from Franconia Notch to the Wild River Range, and I'm confident that I'll be able to for years to come, thanks to the Deuter promise. Each pack comes with a warranty, which promises that if possible, Deuter will repair your pack free of charge. And if it's not possible, they'll replace it with a comparable pack to get you back out there as soon as possible. Deuter believes in collective action to reduce our cumulative environmental impact, and more repairs means a longer life for your pack and less waste for our world. Learn more by heading to Deuter.com. That's D-E-U-T-E-R.com. We're back. When Sarah was describing her town of King Salmon, she mentioned seeing bears, but that's just the tip of the wildlife that calls that area home. I have a a local fox that hangs out, a red fox, some porcupine. We don't have as many moose, although I just saw one yesterday, so I can't really say that. But we don't uh, compare to other parts because they stay away because all the bears, there's there's a lot of bears. <laughs> all brown bears here, which are grizzly bears, um, they are just kind of like a, uh, I guess you could say subspecies, but it's not really the correct terminology to say, but they're a lot bigger than your typical interior grizzlies they're huge because of the salmon resource here but yeah you see a lot of those (laughs) a lot of bears porcupines red fox and if you're really lucky you'll see a lynx (laughs) and when you look at the sky there's a whole lot of bird life as well oh all the birds (laughs) this place is a major flyway which means uh, birds are migrating through here um, to go to their breeding grounds and to leave their breeding grounds each year In spring, it's pretty incredible. The entire river where it's like not frozen and these little ponds around there, you just see like thousands of different types of migrating birds. I mean, I love to go out that time. You're usually like April and just walk around. All of a sudden you have like a thousand swans just flying above you at a time. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. And there's so many of them that the sounds they make is just deafening. It's incredible. (laughs) And then we have a really big shorebird and seabird population, too, which is pretty, pretty awesome to just walk around the beach and see some big ones. And birders come from all over to, to come check this place out. So it sounds like it's just like teeming with life. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Teeming with life. Thousands of people visit Katmai National Park to hike, fish, discover its 15 volcanoes and spot one of around 2000 brown bears. This richness, this life, means that it's even more drastic when there's a die-off of an animal. Many of us listening are far, far away from King Sam in Alaska. But what is happening there has worldwide implications. And it's why Sarah reached out to me in the first place. Tell me why you reached out to me. Well, one of the biggest things that we are noticing here, um, and for the past couple of years, but really it's starting to kick up this year, is that there is a pretty big Alaska seabird die-off right now. 
we really started to see this this year with commercial fishing uh, because people that were out in the boats fishing were finding a lot of these dead birds. And then it became more than a lot. It became thousands of dead birds. Uh, and they were shearwaters, um, which is a black grayish seabird that hangs out usually like way out in the ocean, not not really close to the shore. So that really was started in June and kept going, still is going. <laughs> and then before that, two people up by the uh, Chukchi Sea were seeing puffin die-offs and MERS. MERS were a big die-off that happened a couple years ago here too. But this year in particular, it's shearwaters. And I've been trying to do some more outreach for people to understand how to properly report them so that we can observe and create correct data to uh, kind of educate about like what's happening to these populations and the changes that are occurring in the environment here. Sarah works for Fish and Wildlife, which is a federal agency, which means when she's wearing that hat and speaking as a representative of that agency, she's all about facts. We are not about whatever political conversation is going on. And that is because with these facts, we appeal to everyone, regardless of where you're coming from. Like, these are the things that are happening. Take this information and learn from it and learn about your environment and learn about these public lands. These are your public lands. And how is this affecting your land? The people on Bristol Bay are closely tied to that land and uniquely suited to notice changes. The key is reporting them. We have a very close relationship with the land. There's a a lot of people that utilize subsistence, which is essentially uh, using the resources to live off of, uh, to eat. And obviously we have a really big commercial fishing um, operation here because this is the largest uh, sustainable sockeye fishery in the world, which is pretty incredible. So people really rely on the land and they're pretty observant and have been for a really, really long time. Um, I mean, this this whole land here has a history of 9,000 years of human history, which is pretty incredible. So we're very tied to the land. So when you see things like that happening, people take note. This isn't something that just goes away. We don't have, here in the Alaska Peninsula, we don't have like invasive species as much as you would find elsewhere. So people are pretty tuned into like what is happening and what is weird and out of, out of the norm. Um, so when they're when they're seeing these birds that are just kind of like limp and dying and not really able to move or get out of the way of nets or anything, it's pretty unusual. So um, they call and try and let us know that this is happening because this is a remote area. You know, you don't, it's a lot of, a lot of things can go unreported just because there's not a lot of people here, but you know, the circumpolar North is starting to change and uh, we're trying to take note of what the changes are. So from a data standpoint, you can track over time how many of estimated, like how many of these seabirds, for example, pass away. Yeah. And why are they passing away? Right now, um, you know, we've taken a few of samples from all over here, all these, um, a bunch of villages. We, we came, we went down and took some bird samples and they are determining them to have died of starvation which is interesting. And there could be a multitude of, of reasons for that. Some of the the theories are is that the water is a lot warmer. And so they are not, they don't have access to the food they would normally have, like small fish or diving a lot deeper, or it could be algal blooms. It's another one that could be potentially making these guys starve, but it's kind of universal. The shearwaters are starving. The, the uh, puffins are starving. The murs are starving. <laughs> 
And then um, the one that's been actually getting some press are the gray whale die-offs, which has been going all up and down the Pacific coast, like down into California and same sort of deal. They're, they're finding some of those whales who have starved as well. So it's, it's definitely, we need to take that data and think about what does that mean? And that's why it's really helpful for people that are out there seeing this to report this and to know why this is happening. Because some of the people I have spoke to that saw this were just had no idea. So they just started making stuff up, you know, because <laughs> they don't know. And then, Part of my job is to educate the public that this is going on and there are certain ways to report this and to be aware of what's going on. Yeah, and ideally, over time, you're able to correlate the die-offs with like probably a multitude of factors. I know exactly. you named a couple of them, mm-hmm. but to make it a little more substantial over time. Substantive, I guess. I don't know what the right word is. That's exactly it, is that we want to be able to take all of these together and to kind of come up with an actual, real, tangible thing to present to people about what is happening, what is occurring. And, you know, this is just, this is what biologists and researchers do. This is kind of what our duty is. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting to think that in a place like where you live near Bristol Bay in Alaska, that because of how natural almost the climate is, you know, like how, how few people there are, that if there is like a small change that can be indicative of like have like a bigger ripple effect and you're more able to see that ripple effect. But say somewhere else in the continental U.S. where there's a higher population and there's more things going on, it might go unnoticed. So it's like really valuable to see what's happening um, where you live. Yeah, that's the perfect way to describe it, really. Um, when you're in a place like the lower 48, especially in some of these bigger city areas, the, the land is landscaped. There's all sorts of ornamental invasive species. You know, everybody's got all sorts of things going on there. So it's very different. But here is as close to a really pristine natural environment as you can get in, in the world, really. So, yeah, seeing some of these things happening is definitely worth taking note and seeing how that could potentially affect the rest of the world because, you know, things happen in the north a lot quicker than they would happen elsewhere. You mentioned reporting a couple of times. What, what is it that someone should do if they are up in the area that you're in and they, they notice something? Sure. And it's, they don't even have to just be here. I have a lot of Alaska resources, but um, anywhere you are, I mean, I'm talking even all the way down the, the coast, you know, is usually where you're seeing more of these die-offs. Um, you can report it to NOAA. There you have a whole, uh, it's just noaa.gov slash report, and then you can click on the location where you're in and report it. And they're on that like immediately, like they will email you and they want to know what's going on. And some of the main things that you want to tell them is the location that you found it, the time and date observed, the size of the area of where you were, like just like the length of the beach, for example, the type and number of birds, if you can do that too. And then they love photos. They love photos. (laughs) Photos are great. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, location is hard. But, you know, you can just use the compass on your phone if you don't have anything else. And it even works when you're not in service and you can just do a screenshot of the GPS coordinate. And that's really, really, really helpful to kind of map out where these are occurring. So there, and there's, there's a lot of really cool citizen science opportunities. Um, There's something called 
COAST, which is Coastal Observation and uh, Seabird Survey Team. That's what it stands for. And they've been doing, it's pretty much a 19-year-old citizen science project, and it monitors uh, local marine resources and ecosystem health and all that. And you can just get right on there, and they have a whole thing of, like, how to volunteer and get groups to go out and do this, too, and to record this information. So that's that's really, really neat. A lot of schools do that, too, so they will actually take their students out and, and do coast surveys, which is awesome. <laughs> is that all public data? Like, could I go on and see it? You literally can just type in coast right now, and there's two S's in that, and just see all that stuff and see where they are, what information is being recorded. It's neat because uh, I don't think a whole lot of people outside of the field and, and stuff that I do know that these resources exist. So it's it's really great for people to just check out and get a better idea of what data is being collected and how they can be a part of that, too. There are a lot of ways to get involved. A slightly tangential example of volunteering is what my dad does at the lake he spends a lot of time on in Maine. He signed up with the Lakes Environmental Association to do Secchi readings, measuring changes in water clarity over time. It's really cool. And there's a lot of volunteer opportunities with public lands, like Fish and Wildlife Park Service. You can just go on volunteer.gov and you can find a ton. And we're always like, yes, please, volunteers, <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Yeah, so it's there's a lot of opportunities going back to the coasting uh, to find out even more information about what's going on and more like reporting. There's the uh, LEO network, which is the local environmental network, um, and they put something out called the uh, Northern Climate Observer, uh, which is just an e-journal about climate health in the circumpolar north. And that's a really neat thing to check out because then you can actually see the things that people are reporting in these like really remote areas that could be relevant to the rest of the world. So thinking about that, like looking out over time and you have all this data and scientists can come up with correlations, where does it go from there? What are the next steps, like the next hopeful steps? So that's kind of the biggest part is like, you have to figure out what is causing the issues. So if it is something like, oh, the, the water is undeniably war- warmer. Um, I mean, you can say that by being here and fishing, like which is what I do here, but that's one person. You really need the data to be able to go back to this uh, and you just take it to the next step. Like, so why is the ocean being warmer? You know, it's one thing connected to the other. Like that's how the, you know, scientific like inquiry sort of works. You can't just base it off of like, oh, this thing just happened to me one time. You've got to keep looking and researching it. And this is why it's really important for citizens as a whole to become involved in these citizen science projects because that's a lot more data that people are receiving and being able to make like actual, actual like tangible, real, not just theories, like these are facts that we are talking about. Uh, and it's hard to say, like we can't predict what's going to happen in the future, but we can talk about what's happening now and why it's happening now. And the more data we have for that helps us try and fix the hole or not fix it, but just deal with it. Mm. Yeah. And ideally will shape policy on a federal level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have things like the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, you know, stuff like that because of data. Yeah, that's this is where that stuff comes from is because you cite this stuff. Sarah is so insistent that we report what we see so that it can all be combined together to tell a bigger story about what is happening in the environment as a whole. And while I personally find it all a little bit scary at times, 
Because while data is objective, how we interpret it is not. It's especially important right now. Wildfires are currently burning Alaska, and the higher-than-usual number is likely linked to the drought and higher temperatures. The Amazon is burning. A hurricane just hit the Bahamas. It's easy to turn on the news and get overwhelmed, but it shouldn't turn us off from what's right in front of us. I have made it a point that whenever I go hiking in a place to try and name at least like 10 plants along the hike that I'm at, you know, to really understand like this is the ecosystem that I'm living in and recreating in. And it is a privilege that we have this. It's not, this is not something that's just like, oh, happenstance. This is a privilege and we should know that. <laughs> and when we see changes that are, that can potentially affect that privilege, um, it's just something to take note of. What's a, what's a good way to start? I know at times it can be intimidating, like if you are walking through a landscape to to learn about the biodiversity there. Do you know of any like resources or tools? You know, whenever I go on vacation, I usually try to find like a roadside geology guide. Super nerdy. <laughs> but <laughs> But it's fun because, like, you know, as you're in a road trip, you can, like, turn the page like, oh, this rock is blah, blah, blah from this era. You know, it's really neat. Um, And that's how you start to learn this stuff. And also you can get, like, little small field guides of, like, beginner's guides to plants or beginner's guides to birding. And they're tiny. And you can just throw them in your backpack. They really don't weigh anything. I mean, you can get the textbooks, but I don't recommend going out like that. (laughs) But you can get these little field guides and you can really learn about the things that you're passing and stepping over and how they're all interconnected. And and I think that gives you a deeper connection to what you're experiencing, to where you're hiking. Um, it's because it's it's a pretty amazing, diverse area. I mean, I think people seem to think that when they go out hiking or they're going out to some far off remote place that, oh, this is just like a special spot in this area. And you forget that everywhere used to look like this at one point. <laughs> we just developed it. But you know, it gives you a, a greater appreciation for what the natural landscape where you live actually is and was. I was curious about how being so close to species die-offs and environmental change through her work and everyday life affects Sarah on a personal level. You know, you can think about this in analytical terms, but in, on a personal level, it's, it can be hard. You know, I'm not a scientist by trade. You know, my job is to interpret what scientists do and talk about it to everyone else, which is what I'm doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I am very much, I don't have as much of an analytical being able to separate it as much as as I wish I could. You know, it's definitely a bit wearing um, when you go to work, the phone is ringing and ringing and ringing and you just hear report after report of like, this thing is dead and this thing is dead and this thing is dead. All right, let's go do a survey and count the hundreds of dead animals. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that that's like, you know, hours of time flying in a small plane and like looking out and noticing like, oh, there's a dead whale, there's a dead walrus, there's a dead seal, there's more dead birds. And when you're just inundated with that all the time, it gets to you. <laughs> it definitely gets to you. You realize you're living in uh, in a place where you're seeing these things happen pretty frequently, along with other other notes from the environment too, from other areas and in, in the state. It's a constant moving thing, uh, and it's it's not 
the entire area, you know, has had changes over time. You see that that's pretty well known, but it does seem that there are larger ones that are occurring since 2015 that people have been noticing. So yeah, it affects like, what is the next 10 years of my life going to look like? You know, I'm a mom, I have a one and a half year old, and I think about what is this world going to look like for him in another 10 years? It makes you have those thoughts. You try not to dwell on them too much because it is easy to go down a hole, but you just you just kind of got to wake up and keep doing what you're doing and tell people that this is happening and how to record it and talk about it and see how it will affect the world. We'll hear more about how Sarah has built community living in a small remote town as a newish mom after this. This is a crazy fact. It takes 20 tons of earth mining to create a single ring of gold. That's why Anna Luisa, a jeweler who I'm proud to say is supporting this episode, uses 100% recycled gold for their beautiful, transparently priced jewelry. I recently got the opportunity to try their Ramona anklet, and I wore it up to a week on the lake with my family in Maine. Super simple to wear, I wore it with my bathing suit or with jean shorts and a tank top. It looks like a handful of delicate, small gold shells threaded together. Honestly, I'm not used to being complimented for my jewelry, but a bunch of my relatives commented on it, and it felt nice to wear something that made me feel special outside. On social media, I've been hearing a lot about how some women choose to wear earrings or lipstick or eyeliner, whatever thing that makes them feel like themselves on trail. Because there's not one way to look when you're outside. I love the idea of wearing an Ana Luisa necklace on my next backpacking trip as a reminder of what I value, as well as honoring the fact that the outdoors makes me feel beautiful, as does dressing up sometimes. Learn more about Ana Luisa and get 10% off your order by heading to analuisa.com slash sheexplorers. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash sheexplorers with no space and use code EXPLORE10 at checkout. AnnaLuisa.com slash she explores. We're back. How have you built community where you live? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> this could honestly be like a to- like a whole nother hour of podcast. <laughs> if you're interested at some point, living in Bush Alaska yeah. trip. <laughs> <laughs> it was really intimidating. The first, I mean, the first summer was easy because this place goes from a population of 250 to like 12,000 people in the summer because of all the seasonal workers and the canneries and the commercial fishing. And then it drops off again. Like it's already started to drop off. (laughs) And when I was offered the job to work here in the winter, I was just like, what am I doing? (laughs) The winter in Bush, Alaska sounds terrifying. (laughs) But I worked really hard at it. I I tried to just get out and talk to people um, and do like, you know, luckily my job is a lot of outreach. So I am forced to go out in the community and talk to people and do environmental ed programs. I do a lot of art programs and stuff too here. Uh, But, you know, I played my first winter. I played in a band. (laughs) (laughs) It was an all girl band. We called it Queen Salmon. (laughs) That was really fun. So that really helped. And, you know, you just... You have to balance uh, dealing with 
the winter, which can be rough emotionally. You know, I, I have dealt with depression my whole life. So I, I have a lot of strategies to deal with that sort of thing. Like seasonal affective, like obviously kicks it up a Mm -hmm. notch too. So you have to make an effort to like get out of the house, which is really hard when it starts to get laid out at 1130 and the sun goes down at (laughs) 330. And I will say it actually forced me to have a greater appreciation for the tundra in the wintertime. You become almost in tune to it. Like you get sluggish when the winter comes and it's like you're a part of this environment here. Like you don't have a choice. You can't fight it. You know, you just have to be a part of it. And you start to appreciate like how beautiful the tundra is in the winter and the people that live here in the winter too. Uh, you know, this, this place King Salmon is full of really cool weirdos, <laughs> <laughs> myself included. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's got a story of like how they're here. Maybe it's just that their family has been here for generations upon generations upon generations, or they're a transplant um, and they come from all over. And that's what it is. It's like you get out and you meet the people. And I think that's, like, you know, people always ask me like, what is your favorite thing about Alaska? And I will honestly say it is the people that I meet. You know, this place is really beautiful, but the people that you meet from all over the world that come here are just really, really fascinating. (laughs) Oh gosh. It was a movie I saw once and the name is escaping me, but I, there was a quote in it about if you were to take the world and just like shake it, everybody that wasn't totally tied down would end up on like either end of the world. (laughs) And that's, that's kind of what King Salmon is like. (laughs) So I guess that begs the question, do you feel tied to where you are? I do. I do. I mean, I came out here thinking I was going to be here a summer <laughs> and it's uh gosh, five or six years later now, my, my partner's been here for 10, wow. 10 years. So yeah, uh, we kind of got stuck, but I think this is a place that I'll always be a part of no matter what. I don't think I will live here for forever. Um, and that's mostly because I have a young child and, <laughs> Healthcare is a little bit hard out here. We do have a clinic, which is awesome. But, you know, anything serious, you have to get medevaced out of here. So that brings out the anxious mother in me. (laughs) But, yeah, so I think, you know, and getting him in, I mean, there are schools and stuff here, too. But just getting him out a little bit more, I think, is one of the main reasons why we are trying to relocate for now. But, you know, this place is going away. So I think we will definitely be back here. And we definitely will not be leaving Alaska. We love this place way too much. (laughs) But being a mom in the bush can be pretty tricky. (laughs) There's a lot of, I have a lot of respect for people that have done it before me. (laughs) Talking about community, are there a lot of other moms with children your age? Yeah, there are. They're actually, gosh, this year was a big year for babies. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of babies that just came out. It's nice because you really do realize that there is like a community out there and that you're not alone in it. Um, I had talked to an elder here last year when I was like deep in the beginnings of like having a newborn and just sleep deprived and having like breakdowns, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing that no one talks about. (laughs) And she was just like, you know, Bristol Bay women come from like a certain type of grit (laughs) where you are expected to put the net out, process the fish, do your job and watch your children. (laughs) And there's this sort of camaraderie in that here, you know, where you just strap your baby to yourself and you go about your day. And it's been like that 
for thousands of years. I mean, you talk to some of these elders and they're like, oh, yeah, I had like a little satchel that I just like kept my children on and went out berry picking and then did all this. I mean, this is this is stuff that's been going on for a while. So you, I learned from example mm-hmm. from these people. <laughs> Here, you know, I I had Balin is is my son's name, and um, you know, he, we were living out at Brooks Camp in like a one room cabin amongst bears wow. <laughs> and all that stuff, like for his first summer, which was, you know, it sounds like oh wow, that's magical and great, and it was like it was really awesome. But it was really tough too, yeah. you know. You're having a new baby is a like oh my gosh, my life is totally different now, and I'm still I still have to work, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so does my partner, and you know summertime especially in bristol bay is there's just you don't sleep you ju- you're working seven days a week like constantly it's a very short season mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah it's it's it is trying but there are some really great women out here that you know will always lend an ear it, it like truly takes a village <laughs> really really does <laughs> you talking about the the bears and it sounding magical like to me my brain went to like uh, but a, a baby seems so <laughs> appealing for a hungry bear. A little too <laughs> yeah. morsel, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily he wasn't mobile at the time. He was still very much in block yeah. status. <laughs> so he was mostly just in my backpack or my front carry, and I would just walk him around. And, you know, the bears for me at Brooks are pretty old hat. I know each one. I'm a little bit more rusty than I used to be, but you, you know the behaviors of each one. And I've been hazing bears for a while which just means like you know yelling at them and getting them to move and standing up to him so it's not I'm fairly used to it at this point and honestly they don't really bother you too much at Brooks like you I'm so well trained and how to deal with that out there and a lot of people actually bring their kids out which is kind of cool toddlers are a little bit more tricky yeah (laughs) all they do want to do is run off (laughs) oh my gosh yeah I'm uh I was never like, oh, I really am not into those leashes on tr- and children. And then I got out there and I'm like, oh, man, this I actually could I could see that here. <laughs> I It's the one time where I was just like, yeah, leash might make sense. Because <laughs> I don't it's hard to tell people the density of brown bears out there, but there's a lot in a very small area. In one time, I saw 40 bears standing from a platform out there. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. All within view. Yeah. And, you know, they're, like, outside your cabin, like, walking around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end this episode with a question I ask every woman who I talk to on here, but I normally don't share. So is there anything that... I didn't ask that you'd like to chat about. Jeez, I don't know. Like I said, you could almost break this up into like two conversations. I know. Because the bush <laughs> is like, like, that's a whole conversation on its own. <laughs> I mean. I know. You should consider that at some point because there's a lot of other women here too that are just kind of freaking amazing. Yeah, that could be really <laughs> fun to have like voices of different women who live in like different bush areas of Alaska yeah yeah no that actually could be really fun and I could put you in touch with some like incredible people (laughs) like every it's so funny like I always say like oh everyone talks about like oh there's so many men in Alaska I'm like but I feel like the women are like way cooler I do think this is a great idea for an episode, and I hope to take Sarah up on it. 
In the meantime, I'll link a couple episodes in the show notes that share stories of women in Alaska, as well as those who do trail work or work for a federal agency. Thanks so much to Sarah for reaching out and sharing about something that means so much to her. I'll include links to her social media, as well as all the resources she shared for reporting wildlife dieouts and changes. It's an easy way for us to help scientists move research forward. Thanks to our sponsors, Merrill, Deuter, and Ana Luisa. As always, links and discount codes are listed in the show notes and the episode landing page via she-explorers.com. Learn more about She Explorers by heading to our website, she-explorers.com, and support the show by leaving us a review wherever you listen or sharing the podcast with a friend. Another way to stay connected is to join the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. We have almost 6,000 members in the group, and it's such an encouraging place to share your outdoor endeavors, projects, and to connect with previous guests of the show. Music is by Josh Woodward, Lee Rosevere, Kay Ankle, and Maiden using a Creative Commons attributions license via Free Music Archive. Until next week, have fun out there.